0: Not many foreign policy deals in the Trump administration really mattered. But the Abraham Accords did. They fundamentally reshaped the Middle East. And when Donald Trump signed the Accords on September 15th of last year, even he didn't realize how much they'd changed things. Yes, here
1: are just a few things that have changed in the last year. 250,000 Israelis went to Dubai last year. They couldn't do it before. Cyber experts from Israel and Morocco are working together now. Soldiers from Israel and Bahrain and the U.S. are training together in the Red Sea, sending a signal to Iran. And all of those unprecedented things happened after the lowest point in relations between the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government. The Abraham Accords happened almost by accident last year, in a desperate attempt to stop Israel from illegally annexing parts of the West Bank and destabilizing the region. We're going to take you behind the scenes with never-before-reported accounts from the key players who negotiated the deal. They took the failed peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians, which we told you about in episode one, and used it to create a different deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. Three other Arab countries have joined the agreements and the Biden administration is now trying to expand it even more. I'm Barak Ravid,
0: Axios Middle East correspondent. And I'm Jonathan Swan. This is How It Happened, Trump's Big Deal, part two from secret alliance to the Abraham Accords. Our story begins in March of 2019.
1: It's a Sunday morning and a man shows up at Jared Kushner's house in Washington. His name is Yusuf Eloteiba. He's been described as the most powerful man in Washington that you've never heard of. He's the United Arab Emirates ambassador to the United States. Kushner's been expecting him, they take a seat in his living room. Right away, El Uteiba says something that surprises Kushner. The United Arab Emirates, the UAE, wants to normalize relations with Israel, open embassies, economic ties and borders. This would be a big deal, no Arab country had normalized relations with Israel in 25 years.
0: On the surface, it seemed like the UAE had no relationship with Israel, but appearances can be deceiving, can't they? Exactly, Jonathan. Because behind the scenes, the UAE and Israel had a clandestine relationship
1: for a quarter century. It started with Israel allowing the Emiratis to get U.S. military aid. It continued with a growing security and intelligence relationship, quiet business deals, and even a secret Israeli diplomatic office in Dubai. The White House loved the idea of the UAE and Israel making their relationship public, but politics in Israel got in the way. A year later, the seed that was planted by El Uteiba would bear fruit and turn an
0: international diplomatic crisis into a historic breakthrough that reshaped the Middle East. So now it's May of 2020. The United States is in the middle of the COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, and President Trump is growing increasingly concerned about his re-election campaign. Meanwhile in Israel, after
1: three rounds of elections, Netanyahu finally managed to form a coalition government. He does that with his arch-rival, retired General Benny Gantz. In their agreement, there is one issue Bibi refused to compromise on, annexing around a third of the occupied West Bank, making it formally part of Israel. Gantz is calling for delay and consultation. Netanyahu is doubling down. Bibi believes if he doesn't act fast, it will never happen. So when he's sworn in, he sets a deadline to start annexation.
0: July 1st, just 10 weeks away. So July 1st becomes this kind of ticking time bomb for leaders trying to stop Israel from annexing parts of the West Bank. Barak, how did the world react to Bibi declaring this
1: timeline? Well, Jonathan, it was widespread condemnation. First, annexation is illegal under international law. And second, if Netanyahu were to carry it out, a two-state solution would be off the table for good and the region would be even more destabilized. In fact, Jordan threatens annexation will undermine its peace agreement with Israel. And dozens of countries in the region and beyond are weighing in. But one voice from the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, seems to cut through the rest. Hi, my name is Yusuf al I'm the UAE ambassador to the United States. Three weeks before the July 1st deadline, el wrote an article against annexation, which was published in Hebrew in an Israeli newspaper. It was a very big deal. It was the first time the UAE had ever engaged with the Israeli press. I believe that annexation was going to have horrendous consequences for the region.
2: And I think it was going to put the U.S. in a very awkward spot because they were going to have to defend an incredibly unpopular decision in the region.
1: Eluteiba's article made big headlines in Israel and around the world, and it's a key moment in the story. Why do you think it resonated so much? First, because it was a direct message to the Israeli people at a very critical moment. And second, it really undermined Bibi's spin
0: that the Arab world doesn't care about annexation. Okay, Barack. So is there anyone in the Trump administration who supports annexation at this point?
1: Well, Jonathan, only one guy still wanted annexation. This was David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel. After Netanyahu's July 1st announcement... Friedman starts pushing Jared Kushner very hard. And in one conversation, Kushner told Friedman, listen, David, you're 6,000 miles away and you don't understand what's going on here. We have COVID, the elections. This is not the first priority for the president right now. But Friedman just couldn't let it go. And finally, in the middle of COVID, he flies to Washington on a government plane for an Oval Office meeting. And at this point, Netanyahu's July 1st deadline
0: is only one week away. So Friedman shows up to Washington with some pretty grand ambitions. Who was at this meeting in the Oval Office? We had
1: President Trump, obviously, and Friedman. There's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, Jared Kushner, and Avi Berkowitz. So tell me about Avi Berkowitz. Berkowitz is... 31 years old at the time, and he's Trump's Middle East envoy. And in some ways, he's a classic Trump administration story. He met Kushner in 2011 during a basketball game at a Passover retreat in Arizona. Naturally. Yeah. And they became friends. And in 2016, Berkowitz joined the Trump campaign, and he was the one who suggested that they broadcast Trump's election rallies on Facebook Live. And that's what gets him into Trump's inner circle and eventually lands him in the West Wing at this critical meeting. So, Brock, what's the feeling in the room? Trump is in a very bad mood, and Trump starts delivering this monologue of complaints about Bibi and the speech he gave when Trump presented his Middle East peace plan in January. And Friedman tries to speak up, but Trump interrupts him. And he says, David, why are we even talking about this? And he says, David, I've done more for Israel than any other president in history. Friedman's pitch is going nowhere. He even admits that not everyone in the Israeli government supports annexation. But Trump is done. And he points at Mike Pompeo and he says, you know what? If you want to do it, I don't have a problem. Mike, you decide. (laughs) Seriously?
0: Seriously. So basically Trump outsources the US government's position on Israeli annexation of the West Bank to Mike Pompeo.
1: Yes, but wait for this. He then turns to everybody else in the room and he says, you should know that if anything bad happens, it's on all of your heads. Uh, That does not surprise me. That does not surprise me. And you know, Friedman kind of freaks out because the idea of this being on his head starts to scare him. So what happens next? Kushner is running the show at this point and he sends Berkowitz with
0: Friedman back to Jerusalem. So Avi Berkowitz is in the most extraordinary situation. He is representing the United States as their peace negotiator. And he's being asked to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu to try to strong-arm him into putting annexation on hold. I mean, was he nervous about this? Yeah, he was really nervous. Okay, so Avi Berkowitz flies to Israel. What happens next?
1: Well, he and Friedman have three meetings over four days with Netanyahu. And you have to remember, we're in the middle of covid And the setting of this meeting was pretty bizarre. Here's Berkowitz. I remember, you
2: know, my seat was in the center of the room with David on my left, and the prime minister was seated behind his desk with this very large, like, glass shield in front of him. Uh, It was not the most conducive atmosphere for a really intense meeting, something out of a a
1: sci-fi film, more likely. This first meeting started badly. Netanyahu blamed Berkowitz for leaking stories to the press and Berkowitz protested and called Bibi's accusations offensive. But at a certain point, Friedman leaves the room and Berkowitz looks at Netanyahu and he says, Look, I don't know what David Friedman told you, but the meeting with the president about annexation went really bad. And Jonathan, he tells Netanyahu that any annexation would have to be accompanied by significant concessions to the Palestinians. And at that moment, Netanyahu gets even angrier. And he actually threatens to go ahead with annexation unilaterally without a green light from Trump. Berkowitz stands up to Netanyahu saying that he could do that, but then Trump would tweet something negative against him and he would take away all the international backing that Bibi needs. Berkowitz tells Netanyahu, you're going to take your greatest friend in the world and make him an enemy. I can't tell you what to do, but I honestly advise you not to do it. Two days later, Avi sees Netanyahu again for the second time, but they still get nowhere. So that night when Berkowitz goes back to his hotel, he calls Kushner, and they're both really desperate and frustrated, but they decide to give it another shot, this time with a new idea, offering a carrot instead of a stick. 24 hours before the July 1st deadline, Avi meets Netanyahu one more time before he flies home, and he asks Bibi, if he'd be willing to drop annexation in exchange for normalizing relations with the United Arab Emirates, opening embassies and trade. Bibi is skeptical. He said he's willing to think about it, but he still wanted to talk about annexation. So after four days and three meetings, Berkowitz flies home to the U.S. on a red eye. He's exhausted. He lands in Washington and heads to the White House. On the way, his phone rings. It's Yusuf Eluteba. We'll be back in a moment. We're back. So, Jonathan, Berkowitz picks up the call with a Luteba. It was godsend.
2: You know, it was one of the best phone calls I've ever had in my life. We're both trying to find a way to avert annexation. This is a Luteba. And we started thinking of ideas. This idea came up. He brought up the possibility of Israel not going forward with the annexation in exchange for the United Arab Emirates normalizing relations with Israel.
1: And what do you tell him?
2: I said, you might not believe this, but I had a very similar thought the other day.
1: (laughs) At the same time, on July 1st in Jerusalem, fewer than five people in Israel knew that annexation was dying and that normalization was going to be the new game in town. For Netanyahu, it was a tough moment, and he decided to cut his losses. And for the rest of July, the three sides hammered out a deal. Its general terms were clear, normalization for stopping annexation. So Barak, what was the negotiating process like? Well, you know, Jonathan, this is very interesting because Avi Berkowitz told me that the three sides never met together until the deal was decided.
2: All of the negotiations were done through Jared and myself in Washington. So we would meet bilaterally with one party and then we would meet bilaterally with the other party.
1: So the reason the American, Israeli, and Emirati negotiators never met was that for the Emiratis, they wanted to make sure that when the Israelis are making a commitment, they're not making this commitment to them, that they're making this commitment to the United States. And it wasn't easy. At one point, while the Americans were passing drafts between the sides, the Israeli ambassador Dermer called Berkowitz and said that Bibi would only drop annexation if three Arab countries came on board, not just the UAE. Berkowitz told this to Kushner And Kushner got really mad. He told Berkowitz, tell Ron that one country is all he's going to get. And if he doesn't want it, he can just go fuck himself. Berkowitz called Dermer and gave him a more toned down version of this. And he said, I'll tell you gently, take what you're
0: offered. (laughs) So, Barack, when did they decide to make the deal public? As you can imagine, Trump wanted to make a big splash,
1: so the White House sets August 13th as the day to announce the deal. But then, the day before, Bibi got cold feet because of Israeli domestic politics. And the Israeli ambassador to the US, Ron Dermer, calls the White House and says, We're not going to sign it. This was really a crazy moment, and Kushner and Berkowitz were furious, and Friedman who at that point had dropped his annexation fantasies and was already in Washington to be in the Oval Office for the announcement, calls the prime minister's office in Jerusalem and he shouts at Netanyahu's people and he says, it's happening tomorrow, you don't have a choice. And it worked. Netanyahu got the message.
0: i mean, got to say, Brock, I covered the Trump administration. I did not know that this came so close to falling apart. And that is the most insane story. So now it's just before the public announcement. They need a name for the agreement.
1: Well, Jonathan, that's a funny story. It's the day that the deal is supposed to be announced and they still don't have a name. A member of the U.S. national security team, a two-star general named Miguel Correa, came to Avi Berkowitz and suggested the name, the Abraham Accords. And they went to Kushner with the idea. And immediately, Jared
2: turns to me and smiles at me, and gave me a look, and I and so I felt like now perhaps he thought that I was behind it, because Avi is short for Avram, Abraham in Hebrew. So I said, Jared, just so you know, I you know I I was not involved in choosing of the name, <laughs> and then we brought the name to the president, and he joked that he thought the Trump Accords would be a better name, but he would be okay with this as well. And then the media came in and the rest, I guess, is history.
1: An hour later, on August 13th, Trump, Netanyahu, and the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, get on the conference call to seal the deal. Berkowitz and Eloteiba are on the line too. Here's Avi Berkowitz again. It was
2: extremely quiet. I remember that there was a nervous energy. And as I sat in my chair, even up until this very moment, I was still nervous that some complication would arise. And then Sheikh Mohammed's line dropped. Yusuf al took about 10 minutes to collect Sheikh Mohammed back on the line. And at that point, my hands were sweating. I think, wow, really, all this hard work, and this might not work because of a technical glitch? So there was a moment of uncertainty right there until everybody got on the line. And then it was just, it was incredible energy. I look back at it and sometimes
1: I still have a hard time believing that we actually pulled everything off. And right after the call, Trump surprised the world when he announced the deal. And of course, he did it in a tweet and he let Avi press send.
0: The diplomatic breakthrough came as a surprise announcement, but the president says it's been in the works for some time.
2: The two nations are expected to meet in the coming weeks to sign agreements.
0: The
1: same day, while the world was still processing the news, the finance minister of Bahrain calls the White House and he tells Kushner and Berkowitz, we want to be next, because for the Bahrainis, the UAE move was the cover they needed to take their own secret relationship with Israel into the open. It's September 15th, 2020, the South Lawn of the White House. For the first time in 26 years, Arab states have agreed to normalize relations with Israel. It's the UAE and Bahrain.
0: We're here this afternoon to change the course of history. After decades of division and conflict, we marked the dawn of a new Middle East.
1: There were hundreds of people gathered at the White House. (laughs) Americans, Israelis, Emiratis. It was really like a huge party. The President of the United States, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel and His Highness. So each of the leaders, the foreign ministers of Bahrain and the UAE, the Prime Minister of Israel and President Trump gave speeches and right after the leaders sat down at this table which President Harry Truman used for his cabinet meetings. We kindly ask that all guests remain seated for the signing of the documents. And then they signed the Abraham Accords. <laughs>
0: Within a few months, Sudan and Morocco joined the agreements. We've said the Abraham Accords have changed the lives of millions of people in the Middle East. Barack, what are the practical changes that have occurred in the year or more since the agreements were signed?
1: Well, lots of things,
0: Jonathan. Now there are
1: direct flights
0: from Israel
1: to places like Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and Morocco, and there's much more trade, and actually more countries want to get in on the peace. And the Biden administration is trying to build on it too. They want to get Saudi Arabia. So what's happened to Bibi Netanyahu in the last year? Well, Jonathan, he had this huge achievement, but he lost the confidence of his partners in the coalition government. And a few months later, he lost the election. And he's not the prime minister anymore. In fact, he spends most of his weeks in court, dealing with his trial on charges of bribery
0: and corruption. So both Bibi and Trump are out of power now. The popular conception is that Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu are inseparable, political allies, you know, deeply connected to each other and also very good friends. What Barack's reporting has revealed is that that is utterly false. Uh, Exactly. And just after
1: Trump lost, Netanyahu congratulated Joe Biden on winning the elections and this is where their so-called bromance truly ended. And Trump told me he felt like Baby stabbed him in the back.
0: Nobody did more for Baby, and I liked Bibi. I still like Baby. but I also like loyalty. I haven't spoken to
2: him since, right? I, I didn't talk to him. No. Fuck him.
0: Wow, okay then. There are still questions about the future. What kind of consequences do the Abraham Accords have for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? So,
1: Jonathan, on the one hand, the Accords stopped the annexation of the West Bank by Israel, which could have killed two-state solution for good. On the other hand, the Palestinians really hated the Abraham Accords. Why did they hate them? Because when they saw the UAE and Bahrain and then Sudan and then Morocco make peace with Israel, they realized that the influence they had for years over relations between Israel and the Arab world, it's really diminished.
0: Do you maintain any hope for peace between the Israelis and Palestinians? (sighs)
1: Unfortunately, I don't think we'll see this in my lifetime. But, you know... I didn't think we'd see peace between Israel and this many Arab states
0: either. And that's what we have now. Thanks, Barack. Your reporting's been fascinating, and it's been a pleasure working with you. Thank you, Jonathan. This has been How It Happened, Trump's Big Deal. It's reported by Barack Ravid. For more of Barack's reporting each week, get the Axios from Tel Aviv newsletter for free at signup.axios.com The senior producer is Ariana Garibli. lee The senior editor is Ted Robbins Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer Sarah kahulani Gu is the editor-in-chief Our managing editors include Alison Snyder and Margaret Tarlov Dave Lawler is the world editor Sound design and mixing by Jeannie Montalvo and Alex Sugiura. Our series theme music is by Michael Hampf. Fact-checking by Jacob Knutsen. Special thanks to Chen Gao, Lucia Orejarena, and Axios co-founders Roy Schwartz, Mike Allen, and Jim Vanderheil. I'm Jonathan Swan. Thanks for listening.